I think once you bend two bars over your head, that's probably not healthy. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you need to get your head checked. That's impressive stuff right there that Matt just did. That was good stuff. Isn't that impressive? I'm thankful for Matt that he would put the pressure point out there. We are in the middle of a series called Pressure Point. We're doing a study on the book of James. But before we get into that, a couple of quick things I want to make mention of. On the Riverside campus and also our multi-site campuses, we have a thing called the Sagebrush Academy of Leadership Training. And we're starting our next semester up. And these are really kind of college courses, to be honest with you. If you want to go a little bit deeper into the Word of God, you want to study it a little bit harder, maybe you've been kind of struggling with the Word of God, and this is a chance for you to really do a deep dive, a deep study. If you're interested in going to the ministry, I would encourage you to do one of these studies as well. If you just want to be a sharper Christian, do one of these studies. All the stuff, the information is right there on the Sagebrush app at the very top. Just scroll the second banner over. You'll see where it says salt. At the Riverside campus, there's also a table right out front. You can ask those guys any questions. The courses only cost $30, and it will well be worth your time. Also, we're doing a seminar in just a couple of weeks called Dollars and Cents, Helping People Get Financially Fit. And so if you're struggling a little bit with that or you'd like more information about getting on a budget, being able to honor God with the tithe, uh, being able to get out of debt, those types of things, this seminar is there for you as well. You scroll on the second banner over, you'll see Dollars and Cents. You can also get more information on the Riverside campus right there at the table. We'll help you any way that we possibly can. All right, let's get in to the message today. There was a beautiful woman, and she was a flight attendant, and she was on an extremely long flight with a couple of Casanovas. She had one in the back of the plane, she had one in the front of the plane, and they continued to make their advances towards her, and of course she remained as professional as she possibly could, but it was getting kind of old. Well, finally, it was time for the flight to start to go down into the airport, and she just couldn't wait to get all these passengers off. And so she's doing one less check to make sure that the seat, uh, seat tops and tray tables are in their full upright and locked position. And she walks by the guy who's been messing with her, bugging her the whole flight in the back of the plane, and he grabs her by the hand. He places a key in her hand with a card of an address, and he winks at her and says, see you tonight. Now, what in the world, ladies, would you do if you found yourself in a situation like this? Well, this woman was extremely sharp. So she walked towards the front of the plane, found the other Casanova, handed him the key with the address, winked at him, said, see you tonight at nine. Don't you look forward to the in your mind of the two of them coming together as the one Casanova knocks on the door and the other Casanova answers the door? There's something inside of us we like that, don't we? We like it when the prideful, egotistical person gets the best of them. Well, that's what we're talking about today. We're going to be talking about pride. Now, some of you are looking at me like, I don't know, Todd, is pride really a bad thing? Well, friends, I'll be honest with you. There's a thing such as good pride, and there's bad pride. That's the problem with the English language. We use one word, and it can have several different meanings. There are some good pride, isn't there? I mean, you should be proud of a job well done when you've done it for the Lord, and you gave your very best, and you put forth great excellence in it. You should be proud of that. When your child comes home, from school and they've made a good grade or they've made a good decision, there's nothing wrong with you putting your arm around them and looking at them and saying, you know what, I am so very proud of you. There's nothing wrong with that kind of pride. 
But the kind of pride that the Bible addresses, well, put this in your mind, it's the self-absorbed. It's the egotistical person. You can already get a visual picture in your mind when I just say, think about an arrogant jerk that you know. That's the kind of pride that we're talking about in this passage of Scripture. Now, psychologists call it a self-serving bias to where they give themselves an out and think they're better than everybody else. Let me kind of explain how this plays out in day-to-day life. Self-serving bias is someone who thinks they're a really good driver, but they've been in a lot of accidents. And even though you haven't been in any accidents, they think they're a better driver than you. That's that's a self-serving bias. It's the person who says, I am a generous person because they have feelings of generosity. But those feelings of generosity have never reached into the pocket and done anything to advance the kingdom of God or to help somebody else along the way. But when, because they have feelings of generosity, they feel a little bit superior to everybody else. It's a person who has feelings of being a servant. And they think to themselves, you know, if one day I ever get around to serving, I would be a great servant. But they don't have a ministry. They're not plugging in to serve anybody else. They don't walk into a room and see a need and meet a need. Truth be told, they'd rather be served than to serve. But if the stars ever aligned and the planets came in the right direction, oh, honey, hush, they'd be great servants, wouldn't they? This self-serving bias raises its ugly head from time to time, even in my own life. A few weeks ago, I was driving, and I was trying to pull out onto this busy street, and it was backed up because there was road construction a little bit down the way, and nobody would let me in. Can you imagine in this town that there wouldn't be anybody kind enough to help a brother out? So I sit there for a long time, and finally, a little old man slows his car down, waves me in. I thank him. I wave to him. I pull in front of him. I wave because that's what you do. You look in the rear view mirror, you wave, say, Thank you. I appreciate that. Now I'm in line. Well, I figured out why it was backed up so bad because there was road construction about a thousand feet along the way and everybody was merging into the lane that I was in. So that's what was slowing everything down. Well, I'm getting all the way to the point where the merger lane is getting ready to come to an end. When in my side view mirror, I see somebody busting a move down that road. Now, up the way, everybody else has merged. But this guy thinks he's better than everybody else. He merges all the way to the front. And then he gets to where the two lanes are going to merge. And he tries to put in the nose of his car in front of the nose of my truck. And I'm thinking, not today, Satan. I'll tell you that right now. You are not getting in front of. You know what I'm talking about right now? And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me right now. Why couldn't you go back there and merge back there? That's the merging area. You don't come all the way down. Who in the world do you think you are? Well, here's my problem. He's got just a little bit of an angle on me. And so the nose of his car is a little bit ahead of the nose of my truck. And I think to myself, if I don't stop this silliness, I'm going to have the slowest car collision the world has ever seen. That's what's going to happen here. And so I reluctantly slammed on the brakes and I let them know that I was not happy with their decision. They pulled in front of me and that's when I saw it. That stupid sagebrush sticker right there on the car. (laughs) And I don't know if it was a man. I don't know if it was a woman. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was you. And I've got a question for you. What is wrong with you? That's the question that I've got. 
I was so upset. I was so mad. Got to be kidding me. A person from our own church did that to me. That's ridiculous right there. And I thought, what in the world is wrong with them? Then I glanced into the rearview mirror, and I saw the little old man who had let me in about a 1,000 feet earlier. And I thought about how kind he was to do that. And here I am. I can't do that for someone else like three minutes later. And all of a sudden, God said, you're worried about what's wrong with them. The question you should be asking yourself is, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with this world? Well, I'm what's wrong with this world. And you are what's wrong with this world. We have this idea that we put our needs ahead of the needs of everybody else and we wonder why there's so much restlessness, so much chaos, and so much confusion. So James comes on the scene in this next passage and says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now now James is having a hard time with these people just getting along, isn't he? I mean, back in the beginning of this book, we talked about favoritism, how they were treating people who were rich better than people who were poor. And then last week, we looked at the tongue and how the tongue was being used as a weapon. These people are just wounding each other. And so now he addresses the pride that they have in their life. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, that word desire is the word hedonism. It means it's a person who's trying to make everything about themselves, that they're the center of the universe, and whatever they say, whatever they want, that's the way it should go. And, and oh my goodness, if someone doesn't see it your way or think your way, then boy, you let them have it because they're obviously, they're obviously in the wrong. If you ask any psychologist today, what causes more relational trauma? What breaks more people up? What ends more friendships? What ends more marriages than anything else? You know what they'll say? It's good old-fashioned stubborn pride. And here's what's interesting. Every one of us in this room and everyone at home, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? I mean, you've seen it. Maybe you've even been a part of it. You've seen it. You've felt the effects of it. I know of guys who were lifelong friends at one time. And then there was a misunderstanding or there was some kind of miscommunication or one of them said something that they shouldn't have said. And rather than asking for forgiveness and rather than the other person receiving and saying, I forgive you and reconciling that relationship, they're no longer friends anymore. And it all comes back to the root of good old-fashioned stubborn pride. There are marriages represented today here in this room and some at home as well that are hanging on by a thread because you won't compromise. You won't see it the other way. You won't come to where the other person is at. No, you yell and you fight and you scream and you you link into your position. You want to win every argument and every single battle. You can't say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And your marriage is going to end. All because of good old-fashioned stubborn pride. I know of children whose parents make parenting mistakes all the time. And yet they won't come clean to their kid. They won't say, hey, we shouldn't have said that. We shouldn't have done that. We, that we're so sorry for what happened right there. They won't do it. And so you know what they're doing? They're raising resentful, bitter children who can't wait to leave the home. And it all comes back to good old-fashioned stubborn pride. I know of people who are struggling with a habit 
or some addiction. Or they've made some promise to themselves and promise to their family and promise to their friends that things were going to be different from this point forward, but they don't have what it takes to make it different. They don't have what it takes to make a change in their life, and they won't ask God for help. They won't ask anybody else for help. They won't go to living free. They won't get with a support group of people who will love them and encourage them and hold them accountable. Why? Because they can't admit their weakness. And it all comes back to good old-fashioned stubborn pride. So you know what we're going to do today? We're going to take a pride test. Aren't you glad you got to church today? Aren't you glad you tuned in? Isn't this going to be a lot of fun as we find out how prideful we are? Now, this is a test only for you, okay? This isn't a test for the person sitting to the left of you or to the right of you. I don't want to see any elbows flying at somebody else because that would show that you're the prideful one because you're showing them that they're the ones that's a mistake, right? That's what you're doing there. So let's not do that, okay? First question, just grade yourself on this. Are you a stubborn and defensive person? I already hear some chatter. It's you. (laughs) Does it always have to be your way? Your way or the highway? Do you have a hard time saying that you were sorry, that it was your fault? Have you ever said the phrase, I was wrong and you were right? Or do you twist everything to make the other person feel like they're the ones that's responsible for the issue in the first place? Give yourself a point if that's you. Let me give you another one. Are you an arrogant person? You the man. You the man. You stepped out of heaven and walked on the land. You the man, right? You think you're all that in a box of chicken and you're nothing more than a wing. That's what you think right there. That's what you think. Think you're all that. Think you're hot, but you're not, right? That's what you're thinking. There was this woman, she came to church, she said, Pastor, I'm going to have to deal with pride and vanity for the rest of the days of my life. And the pastor said, why do you feel like you're going to be dealing with that? She said, well, when I come to this church and I look at all the other women, I just know that I'm so much more pretty than they are. That's what she said. And the pastor looked at the woman and said, ma'am, that's not pride, that's a mistake. Are you an arrogant person? Let me give you this one. Do you think you're smarter than everyone else? Everybody's a few fries short of a Happy Meal, right? They're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. They're not the brightest light in the sky, right? You're just a little bit superior. You just see things a little clearer than everybody else. Everybody else is a little bit inferior to the wise wisdom and intelligence that you have. There was a pilot, and he was in a little four-seater plane, and he had three passengers with him. So it was the pilot, there was a, a, a reverend, a minister, and there were two teenagers. And one of the teenagers happened to have just won an award called the Smartest Teenager of the World Award. So they're flying over, they got their headsets on, and all of a sudden something starts going wrong with the plane. So the pilot radios in to the guys, and he says, guys, guys, I got bad news and I've got worse news. The bad news is the engine of the plane is losing oil pressure. This plane's going down. The worst news is I've only got three parachutes. So one of us is going to go down with the plane. He said, guys, I'm a married man, and I've got three young children. I can't leave them behind. And so with that, he grabbed a parachute, opened up the door, and he jumped out. Now, the other three guys are all sitting there going, now, what in the world are we supposed to do? That's when the smartest teenager in the world spoke up. He said, gentlemen, I have to go too. I have to have one of the parachutes. I am the smartest teenager on the face of the earth. I I might come up with the cure for cancer. I might come up with the cure for AIDS. I might fix the world's economic problems. And with that, he grabbed a parachute and he jumped out. 
Well, the minister looked at the other teenager and he said, listen, son, I've made my peace with God. I'm ready to meet with him. You take the last parachute and you jump. And the teenager looked at the reverend and said, relax, reverend. The smartest teenager in the world just jumped out with my backpack. (laughs) See, maybe you're not as smart as you think you are. You see what I'm saying? But boy, you just keep building up confidence along the way, don't you? How about this one? Are you an argumentative person? Do you fight all the time? And there's some days you wake up, you're just looking for a fight. And you pick on the other people, and you put it on them, and you just stir up. You're just a pot stirrer. Everywhere you go, you just stir a dissension. Everywhere you go, you cause trouble. Everywhere you go, and you like it because you like to be right. You like to point the finger at what someone else has done. And you have fights and arguments over the dumbest stuff. Stuff that two weeks from now, you don't even remember what it was about. But at the time, oh my goodness, it was so important to you, wasn't it? How about this one? Are you a critical person? Nothing's ever good enough for you. You critique everything. You're like a walking, breathing, living Simon Cow. That's what you are. <laughs> so you critique every restaurant, every meal that you've ever been given. You critique, oh my, you even critique this worship service, right? You're watching at home, you're in the room, you're like, oh, I, I like that first song. I like that first song a lot. That was a good song. That second song, I'm not sure about that second song. I wish we wouldn't sing that second song so much. And all these lights and all these whistles and bells, I mean, is that necessary? I mean, that's kind of overkill. Don't you think that's a little ridiculous right there? But I tell you what, that preacher, he's good looking. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's very kind of you to say such a thing. But is that you? You kind of criticize and you kind of judge everything and everybody and you're always talking about somebody else and what they could be doing or what they should be doing because you're just a little smarter than them. You know a little bit better than them. Does that remind you of anybody that you know? How about this one? Are you a selfish person? James says you want something but you don't get it. You kill and covet but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. Everything's a competition for a prideful person. And they got to come out on top. So they got to have the nicest house, the nicest car, the nicest clothes, the nicest whatever it is. And if they don't have it, they get very upset. They get, they get, because it's all about them. Everything revolves around them. It's all about building their little kingdom that's here today and gone tomorrow. How about this one? Do you think God exists for you or do you exist for God? James says this in verse 3, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Let me tell you about prideful people, and this will help you to know whether or not you're a prideful person or not. Prideful people rarely pray. Why why would you? Because you're just counting on yourself. You're going to take care of it, right? You're going to handle it. Why would you call out to God? You got yourself in the mess, you'll get yourself out of the mess, right? Prideful people, when they finally do get around to praying, it's always a wish list of them telling God exactly what they want God to do because God exists for them rather than them existing for God. So it's a list of, hey, give give me a smoking hot girl. Give me a smoking hot guy. Give me this. Give me that. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Give me, give me, give me because you are the center of the universe. And God exists to bring you joy. God exists to bring you comfort. And when God doesn't do what you think he should do, well, then you stop praying. You say, you know what? That just didn't work. God didn't want to do what I want, so I'm just going to go another direction. Do you know anybody like that? Look at what James says here. You adulterous people. 
ouch. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? One translation puts it this way. God jealously longs for us. He doesn't want anything else to be more important than him. But prideful people, guess who's sitting on the throne of their life? They are. It's all about them. And God has to bow down before them. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You live your life that way, you're heading for destruction. You're heading for a very shallow, meaningless, superficial life. God says, listen, if you want to have a relationship with me, I'm supposed to be first and foremost. And not just first and foremost, like I barely eke out the victory at the end. I'm preeminent. I'm far above. I'm greater than everything else. Bible says God's a jealous God. He must be first, so far in front that the rest of the pack is trailing far, far behind. Now, why does God want that? For the same reason you want it in the relationships that you've got. Let me talk to all the married ladies here for just a second. Let's just imagine, some of you will go forward in time, some of you will go back in time. Let's say it's your first anniversary, and your husband looks across the table and says, I want you to know that I love you more than any other woman on the face of the earth. I love you more than Rachel. I love you more than Mia. I love you more than Jessica. I love you more than Emily. How would you feel, ladies, in that moment? You'd probably stop and say, hang on, just tell me a little bit more about Emily. Who's this Emily that you're talking about? Well, you know, she's just this girl that I see from time. Well, excuse me? Why would you be offended? Why would you be upset? Because you want to be first. You want loyalty. You want that person to be committed to you and to you alone. You want exclusiveness. So it is with God. That's why he says, you love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. Because he's trying to protect you from yourself. Because when you get arrogant, when you get prideful, you have no need for him. I want you to see what God does in that situation. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. God says, I will oppose you. I don't, I don't know about you. I don't want Michael Jordan opposing me on the basketball court. Not in his prime and not today. I don't want Elon Musk opposing me in an auction. I don't think that would be a very fair fight. Do you really want God opposing you? And yet that's exactly what God says he'll do. I'll oppose your plans. I'll oppose your dreams. I'll oppose every aspect of your life until you finally humble yourself before me. It's this picture of God opposing the proud. The word opposing means to stiff arm. God stiff arms the proud like a Kansas City chief stiff arming a Dallas cowboy and throwing him down to the ground, burying him into the earth's surface. Just wanted to give you a visual. That's all I wanted to do. But what's he do? He gives grace to the humble. Things not working out the way you hoped they would? Could it be that God is opposing you? You say, you know what, Todd? You kind of got my attention because in that pride test, I, I didn't fare very well. Yeah, me either. I pretty much flunked the whole thing too. So what do we do when we're full of ourselves? 
when we've made ourselves the be-all, end-all of the universe. Well, thankfully, James tells us what we should do. He says, submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. What's the first thing he says? We must submit ourselves over to God. Let me let you know a little secret. You're nothing apart from him. And you can't do anything of any eternal value or any eternal significance apart from him. Do you remember a couple of series ago? I think it was last year. We talked about that our life is but a mist. And we had an air freshener and we we sprayed it and we said, that's your life right there. Hundred years from now, nobody's even going to know that you ever existed. Do you understand that? And yet we strut our stuff and we boast and we brag about we really accomplished something, we really did something, and a hundred years from now, no one's even going to know that you ever breathed one breath on this earth. What do we have to boast about? I have nothing to boast about except in this, that I know him and he knows me. That's all I got. And that any good thing that ever comes out of me isn't even because of me. It's because of him. Because he gave me the gifts. He gave me the talents, the abilities. He gave me the life. To him be all the glory forever and ever and ever. Your body is to give glory to him. Your job is to give glory to him. Your attitude is to give glory to him. Your abilities are to give glory to him. You say, how in the world do we do this? Well, friends, once again, it comes back to surrender. It's this mindset that you have every day where you say less of me and more of you. God, don't let me get in the way of what you want to do. God, I'm not here on this earth to make my name great. I'm here on this earth to make your name great, to lift you up on high. Because if I lift you up on high, you'll draw all people to your side. It is not about me. It's about you. So I surrender. I surrender my plans. I surrender my dreams. I surrender my life to you. What did Jesus say? If you want to be his disciple, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him every single day. It is a daily surrender of all that you are over to him. Do you do that? Do you live your life that way? So we submit ourselves over to God. And then he says this, you resist the devil. The devil's an egomaniac. He's just a prideful jerk. And and, isn't that what got him in trouble in the first place? He's in heaven, and he says, you know what? I'll I'll sit on the throne. I will ascend. I will do this, and I will do that. And God said, no, you won't. He threw him down to the earth, and when God began to make his creation, what's the first move he made? He came against us. And he goes to Adam and Eve and says, I hear God's holding out on you. You know, if you eat from that tree right there, you'll be just like God. You'll be able to call your own shots. You'll know the difference between what's good and what's evil. You ought to take from that tree. Don't you want to call your own shots? Don't you want to do your own thing? And boy, that appealed to Adam and Eve. So they took the fruit and they ate it, and their eyes were open, just as Satan said. But not to the things that they wanted to see. Their eyes were open to shame and regret. Their eyes were open to death, sickness, suffering, and pain. Let me tell you something. Satan will whisper in your ear all the time that you're all that. He'll tell you that you did this and you did that and you should be real proud of yourself and you should puff up your chest and act like you're all that. 
you look him in the eye and you say, get behind me, Satan. I'm made by God, for God, to have a relationship with God. And anything good in me is because of him and for him. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. And the Bible says if you do that, if you'll say those kinds of things, you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And then he says this, we must draw near to God. Let me ask you a question. How close are you to God today? Here's the answer. You're as close to him as you've chosen to be. So if you feel like God's distant, that's because you've chosen to be distant from him. How close are you to God? And how close do you want to be to him? Close enough to get up a few minutes early in the morning and spend some time in the Bible and in prayer? Close enough to walk with him and talk with him through every decision that you make, to slow down and say, you know what, I need to consult the word of God on this one. I need to consult the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me to make sure I'm not going the wrong direction because God is my leader, God is my guide. How close are you to God? And the closer you get to him, friends, the more humble you'll be because you'll see how big and great and awesome and powerful he is and just how small you are. And that the only thing that makes you and me significant is because he loves us and gave his son to die for us. That's it. That's it. And then we got to get honest about our sin. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You want to break the back of pride? Repent of your sin. Boy, you don't hear about that much anymore, do you? People just don't repent of their sin anymore. Oh, we pray those trite prayers. Oh, God, just forgive me for all my sin. We just go about our day, keep doing the same things we've always done. What if you named them one by one? What if you said, God, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have had that thought. Oh, God, I'm a miserable mess. Listen, let me, let me tell you the truth about me. I'm a sinner, a great sinner. I am married to a great sinner. I have three daughters, every one of them great sinners. My oldest daughter is married. I have a son-in-law now. He is a great sinner. I, I'm going to have a son-in-law soon this month. He is a great sinner. I have a grandson he is perfect in every single way. <laughs> Don't tell me anything different. I'm the pastor of the largest group of sinners that gather together every weekend in the entire state of New Mexico. That's what we are. But when's the last time you confessed your sin to him? You know why prideful people don't confess their sin? Because they don't want to know the truth about themselves. But when you come to before God and you say, it's me. I'm the one messed up. I'm the one to blame. I'm the one that did that. I'm the one that said that. Oh, God, I'm in need. I'm in need of your grace. I'm in need of your mercy. I'm in need of your forgiveness. And then when you feel the cleansing power of God in and through your life, well, guess what? You'll be more kind and more forgiving to other people as well. Because all you can think about is how good and loving and forgiving God has been to you. And so you want to pass that on to the people who wound you along the way. So who's sitting on the throne of your life? 
Are you firmly planted there? Are you the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Or is Jesus sitting on the throne of your life? You're in a battle, friends, and the battle isn't between God's will and Satan's will. That's not your issue. The battle's between God's will and your will. Less of me. More of you. If I have anything to boast about, I'll boast in this, that he knows my name. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how many relationships are torn apart because of pride? How many families have been ripped apart because we couldn't take the same forgiveness that you gave us and pass that on to other people? Oh, God, forgive us. Forgive us for any moment that we've ever strutted our stuff in front of somebody else thinking we were all that. Lord, we're sinners in need of a Savior. And oh, what a Savior you are. So humble us. God, we pray once again, less of us and more of you. We lay down our lives. We lay down our will. We lay down everything before you. May you be lifted up. May you be praised. Because you're the only one worthy to sit on the throne of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.